2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 is where we'll be this morning. Um, the question I have for you this morning is, what is heaven really like? Uh, a lot of times when we think of heaven, we think of clips and movies that we've seen where we have halos on our heads and wings on our back and we're put in dazzling robes with bright lights and clouds everywhere and God somehow looks like Father Time or Morgan Freeman or something like that. Uh, or we think of it as it's some sort of cruise ship in Florida, um, you know, where there's a lot of gray hair and Hawaiian shirts or something like that. And so um, I think a lot of these images exist because for us, heaven is hard to imagine because scripture, quite frankly, doesn't really give us a ton of detail. So we're forced to come up with what we think it could be or what we really want it to be. But how is it that we really are going to live eternally? Um, That's what the Bible talks about. How is it that we are going to have glorified bodies? Uh, What does it mean if we have loved ones who have passed? Will we see them? What will our relationship with them be like? And how are we going to have eternal life and not be bored? How how is that going to work? And so these are questions that we might ask ourselves because um, I think they're very important to ask ourselves. Um, James talks about this earth as a vapor. Uh, in other words, James would say that our time right here is a temporary speck compared to what we have in eternity. And so scripture often focuses on what lies ahead. Uh, you see all these people who are willing to die for their faith in Scripture. You have the prophets of old all the way to the New Testament apostles and disciples, and they're willing to die for what lies ahead. So it's obviously very important that we have a, a grasp of, of what lies ahead. And so my goal this morning is, uh, is a daunting task. I not going to answer all the questions of what heaven is going to be like or anything like that. But what I hope to do is I hope that we would at least scratch the surface and perhaps this text will inspire us to await a better day as we know what lies ahead even more. So I want to bring us up to speed. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, um, Paul is writing to Timothy some of his last words. Uh, Paul's last words are really found here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and perhaps even the last paragraphs that he had ever penned were in these sacred words of God. And so here he's invested quite a bit of time into this younger pastor named Timothy. And Timothy was this pastor who Paul was trying to invest in so that he would continue in the ministry that he had started. Uh, Paul had planted gospel-centered churches. Paul had founded everything that he had done on the word of God being preached. And so what he wants to happen in Timothy's life is for Timothy to continue to do the same thing. But uh, what Paul has consistently communicated throughout the entire book of 2 Timothy is that it's going to get harder and harder to do that. It's going to get more and more difficult to preach the word. People aren't going to want to hear it anymore. They're going to go and find uh, preachers because they're itching ears that, that, that would satisfy and gratify their flesh. And so he's going to say it gets harder and harder. You're going to face more and more trials and more and more pain and agony to obey Christ. It's not going to get any easier. But here's what he does in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 4. 
Paul begins to talk about how even though it gets more and more difficult, there is a reward on the other end that we look forward to, that we do get to enjoy Christ and we get to enjoy a better day. And so what Paul's intent is in these few verses is that we won't regret living faithfully to Christ. And so that's what we hope to walk away with this morning. So let's read what Paul says in his letter to Timothy, starting in verse 6 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So what does it mean that Paul would make this statement? This is the second time that he makes this statement in scripture. It's a famous line that Paul often says is he is a, he's being poured out like a drink offering. Uh, What is that actually symbolized? Well, Paul is actually using language that shows up in the old covenant. In the old Testament, uh, what you see happen is people would often give a sacrificial lamb to God. This is before Christ came. And so that's the way that man would communicate with God is they would give sacrifices to God. And so they would take a lamb, they would sacrifice it. And what often would happen is they would take a cup of wine and they would pour it over the base of the altar where the uh, lamb was being sacrificed. And they would do this, it's been said, they would do this to allow a, a better smelling aroma to the sacrifice. And so Paul is using this language because he's saying he's being poured out in the same way. He's being prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice for Christ, that he would eventually die for the sake of the gospel. So a better way to even say it is he's, being, um, he's bleeding out for the sake of the gospel. Now, what's even interestingly enough, and this is just a side point, it's very interesting that the way that Christ talks about his own blood in Luke 22 when he talks about uh, the la- at the Last Supper. He talks about how he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus even, when he, the way that Jesus demonstrates his own sacrificial death, he says, yeah, that whole sacrificial system where a lamb would be slain and Uh, wine would be poured. That was a picture of me. That's what Jesus was talking about there. It's very interesting. And so what Paul, when he uses this um, language, he reflects back to a system that Timothy, being a former Jew, would have been familiar with. He would have known what it means to be poured out like a drink offering. He's making this ultimate, he's sacrificing his life out for Christ. And so then he uses this language. He says, for my time of departure has come. This is somewhat of a peaceful metaphor that Paul uses. It's a metaphor that, of a ship that is about to sail. And Paul realizes here at the end of his life that he's ready to see Christ. Now, I want you to remember that Paul is the same guy who some five years earlier to writing this, when he wrote to the church of Philippi and Philippians, he says, it's for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? To die is gain. And so Paul is not a man who is afraid to die. 
Why? Because he knows what lies ahead. He knows that he awaits to see a better day. Although he is being poured out like a drink offering, he doesn't regret it because it's worth it because he gains Christ. That's what he looks forward to. And so he uses this sailing analogy of uh, my time of departure has come. He's not like, I'm at the last of my days. I'm at the end. No, it's my departure. He's gaining something by leaving this earth. And so Paul is not a man who is afraid to die because he knows death is just the beginning of his eternal life in glory with Christ. And it's a beautiful picture. And that should be us this morning. We should be people who are so laser focused on what lies ahead that we're not even afraid of death. And I was, when I was younger, I used to not fear death like I do now. Like something about having a wife and kids, you you, you fear death. You don't want to leave them behind. I want to live, I want to grow old with my wife. I want to see my boys have children. I want to have grandchildren and I want to be the granddad that, you know, gives them my old Bible and words originals or whatever else that, you know, that happens. I want to be that pastor who can wear the mint green, you know, suit with the high waters and the socks pulled up. You know, I want to be that guy. And so, um, so what is it though about death that, I'm, I'm like, I've always been afraid of the mode of death, like that hasn't left me. Like, I'm really afraid of getting eaten by a shark. I don't want that to happen to me. Um, that grew up in the 80s watching Jaws movies and the idea of, like, a shark ripping me apart and I'm still alive watching, like, my body parts float up in a bloody mist of water. You know, like, that freaks me out or getting bit by a, a really venomous snake where I have to find, like, the cure in three hours where I'm dead and... Like, I watch my body swell. Like, that freaks me out. Anybody else? Is that, is that just me? Okay. So the mode of dying, um, yes, I, I get that. But dying in and of itself, I, I haven't been afraid of until recently. And the reason why that's hard for me is because I think it's difficult for us because we haven't even seen a glimpse of what we were really made for. We haven't even seen a glimpse of this. Um, I think I know what's best. And I think I know what's the best thing on earth. The best thing on earth is my family and my kids and how they grow. That's the best thing on earth that I can conjure up. But that is nothing compared to what lies ahead. And my worldly mind cannot comprehend it but I know it's to be true because it's one of the mysteries of God's word is what lies ahead. I remember when I I was in college, freshman year, and I I lived in this dorm room. We had a bunch of different guys in the same room. Um, And there was this one guy, very like really spiritual guy, real serious. And he was always starting these theological conversations like right before we went to sleep, like you're like where you're like not sure if you're awake or you're dreaming or what's real and what's not, like that stage. He's like, "Hey guys, what do you guys think of the Trinity?" It's like, "Come on, like, do you guys think Adam had a belly button? Like, who cares? Right? Go to bed." Like, some of you get that in a minute. Um, and this one night, he pulled one of these. You guys ready for Christ to return? And we're like. Uh, you know, and like, so we all just said yes to like get him off of our back, right? 
And he said, well, what about you? Do you? Are you ready for Christ's return? He says, I don't know. I've kind of always wanted to have sex first. <laughs> and, then, and then I remembered us just busting out laughing because we're expecting this really seriously weighty theological answer. And he comes out with this like super, like almost creepy answer. And we're like, okay, that's not, but, but why did he say that? Because that is the best thing on earth that he could conjure up that would not compare to the coming of Christ. And so here, here's the thing. We all do that though, do we not? There's something that we're conjuring up that, that's got to be better than this because we can't imagine what heaven will be like or what it will be like to live in this reality of finding complete and utter joy and satisfaction in Christ. And so when Paul writes, he says, my time of departure has come, he realizes that he will soon gain Christ. And then he describes his life. And I love the way he does this, how he ties this all in. In verse seven, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, if you read this, it seems like Paul is boasting himself, like he's pounding his chest and he's bragging about his accomplishments. But again, and and, and this is interesting, this is an interesting parallel that you can look at later. But a lot of the things that Paul says about his relationship with Christ and what our relationship could be or should be or will be in the book of Philippians, he actually lives it out in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's very interesting. Because Paul, even though he's bragging about how he's finished well and that he's fought the good fight, he's finished the race, we got to understand that he's also the same guy who in Philippians chapter 1 says, it's he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's the same guy who says that. And so when he talks about him finishing well, he's fighting the good fight, he's keeping the faith. I want you to know that he's the one who also realizes it's not him who did it, it's Christ in him. It's Christ who started the work in him and it's Christ who finished the work. You know what that's called? It's called endurance. It's called sanctification that Christ begins a work in you when he saves you and he continues that work throughout your life and till the end when you breathe your last breath. And that's one of the joys of knowing Christ, which means this, a life given to Christ is not wasted. You can't waste your life if you belong to him. He won't let you. He will, through Christ in you, cause you to fight sin. He will allow you and enable you to finish the race. He will give you the strength and the faith and the endurance to keep the faith with him. He will do that. And that is a guarantee. And Paul is just living proof of this. He's nothing special. He's nothing special. When we look at Paul and go, of course he fought the fight. He's the apostle Paul. He's, he, he's the one who was saved on the Damascus road where Jesus just showed up and showed him who he is. And he told him to, he blinded his eyes and then made him alive. Of course he's the one. No, no, no. 
He is just like everyone else who Christ saves. He finishes the work that he starts in us. And so this is why I I struggle sometimes in the South where there's this theology that people believe that you can lose your salvation. That somehow like you can enter in a relationship with Christ and he's your father, but if you can do a certain amount of things that he's not your father anymore, like how does that work exactly? Because here's the thing. Here's a problem with that theology. It's the gospel. Because once you enter into a relationship with Christ, let me remind you, it was nothing that you did to earn the favor of God. It was by grace that you have been saved through faith in Christ alone. And faith was given to you by a gift. You were dead in your sins. You're made alive together with Christ. That's the gospel. And what he starts with you, he finishes. So you can't lose something that you didn't get on your own to begin with. And by the way, if you could lose it, you would. You would. Because who keeps you in the game, so to speak? It's Christ in you who keeps you to obey. It keeps you to persevere. And so this doesn't mean that you're a robot. It doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. No, when you became a believer, when Christ died on the cross for you, he died in your place. You repented of your sins. You believed in the gospel. He takes out an old heart and he replaces it with a new. And that new heart desires to love him. And now you, if you're a believer in Christ, you are an incurable God lover. So you'll strive for holiness. You'll strive to please him. Let me take you to one other place where Paul unpacks this idea. And we're going to see a lot of parallels here between what I'm about to show you, and this is in Philippians chapter 2, between Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, and what we see in Paul's life in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second, uh, Philippians chapter uh, 2, verses 12 through 18. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So it seems as if we're working this thing out. It's about us, right? Seems like it's about us, but then look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So how is it we're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? It's God who works in us that calls us to do it. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am poured out as a drink offering Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Isn't that interesting? He mentions drink offering again. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you all should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is this example of what Christ does in us when he works through us. He causes us to fight the good fight. He causes us 
to keep the faith, he calls us to run the race well. And so there, our motivation, if we're believers in Christ, will be to please him because pleasing him turns our hearts into gladness. And that's one of the rewards that we receive here and now. That's one of the rewards that we receive of knowing Christ. We get the joy of pleasing him. But then there's this other reward that Timothy is, or Paul is going to talk about in his letter to Timothy in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy that I want, that I want us to bring our attention to in verse 8. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. He says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who has loved his appearing. Now, you know, so there's this reward of knowing Christ and living for him on earth. And that's the joy that we have in obedient, uh, being obedient to him. And then there's this other reward that we have of when we enter into heaven with him, it says he rewards us with the crown of righteousness. Now, what happens when we talk about this often in, in churches? We hear this, there's this message of when we talk about crowns. I've heard it growing up a million times of when you get to heaven, if you've done all the right things on earth, if you were a good giver, if you shared the gospel, if you prayed, if you read your Bible every day, your crown is going to be massive. And you have to, it's, you barely be able to lift it and you get to throw it at Jesus' feet. And then the one who doesn't do anything with their life, right? They get like a little pinky ring sized crown. They get to like flick at Jesus' feet and he can barely find it because it's so small. Like. And so they, what's the motivation behind that? Your crown. Why do you obey? Because you don't want to be embarrassed by throwing the pinky size ring finger crown at Jesus. You want to be able to have a forklift in heaven that, you, you know, that's, that's like the, the images, yeah, or the famous like preacher joke that the guy gets to heaven and he's waiting his mansion and he gets to the big mansion and Jesus is like, no, it's not that one. The next mansion is a little bit smaller. No, it's not that one. All the way down the end of the block and it's like this little shack. He's like, this is your mansion. And the guy goes, uh, why is that my mansion? And Jesus is like, well, I had to do something with the money that you gave me. And it's sort of this guilt, like, oh, you got to give. If you want a mansion or heaven, you got to obey. If you want a big crown that you get to throw at Jesus' feet. I mean, how many, we've heard this a million times if you've grown up in church. Like, that's the mindset. So what happens in that is the motivation of, I don't want to be embarrassed, I don't want to live on this side of heaven in the, in, the, you know, in the rough part of town in heaven, which doesn't make any sense anyway. I, I don't want to be embarrassed because I got to throw this. So it ends up being Superman centered. And I think a lot of the teaching is just to guilt people to live a Christian life by teaching this way. But, but this is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, it goes against everything that the gospel says. So in order for us to work through this tension, we have to do a little bit of work so we can understand what the crown of righteousness really means. And so to do that, we have to ask this question. First of all, 
Will we be judged for what we do here on earth? Will we? Yes. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a savior to die in our place and to to advocate with the father on our behalf because we can't do it in ourselves because there's nothing good in us that can do that. So we need Christ to die in our place to do that for us. But how about after we receive a relationship with God, we get the gift of faith, we have a new heart, we're a new person, what happens then? Are we still judged? The answer is still yes. But it's not the same judgment as if you are an unbeliever. It's it's actually a different type of judgment. It's a judgment of really our motives. And what are you going to see happen in 2 Corinthians 5? Paul actually talks about the same idea. In 2 Corinthians 5, he's telling the church at Corinth that the Holy Spirit in you guarantees that we have, believers, have a heavenly dwelling place. But then he explains what happens when we appear before God, before we enter into this eternal glory with him. And that's 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. He says this, Yes, we are of good courage, And rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make our aim to do what? Please him. So our our life, our goal, why we're here on earth is to please him, but we await to see him. We wait to be at home with him. I love the way that Paul describes this. Then it says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due and what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, we can go a bunch of places just on verse 10, but it doesn't make sense unless we read verse 11. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. In other words, there's no fakers, right? And I hope it is known also to your conscience. And so what Paul is unpacking here is our motivation will be brought before Christ and it will be judged. In other words, what pleases Christ are the things that we actually do for him, not the things we do to glorify ourselves. Let me show you one more place where Paul unpacks the same idea. 1 Corinthians 3, what you have in 1 Corinthians 3 is there's, the people are continually being immature and they're picking sides. They're picking sides. It's sort of like me saying, well, I'm on a better, more spiritual team because I use this translation of the Bible, or I'm on a more better spiritual team because I dress a certain way, or I'm on a more spiritual team because I go over, pull for Carolina over stay, which makes more sense, but um, obviously... Um, But at this point, people had gotten so immature that they would choose sides. And they began to actually worship certain pastors over the others. So some would say, well, I I like Paul. And there's another pastor named Apollos in the church. Well, I like Apollos. And it would be almost like saying, you know, when Chris Wilson preaches, I like to come that Sunday, but I won't come the Sundays Ben preaches. Or Jake preaches only 30-minute messages. We'll all come to those and forget the other two guys. Because God only works in a 30-minute slot, and everybody knows that, right? And so the immaturity there is there, and they're picking sides. And what, what Paul begins to do is he begins to unpack this idea and say, 
Listen, it's not about one man or the other, one leader or the other, one tribe or another. It's about Christ. That's the only thing that will remain. And so this is what he does in 1 Corinthians 3. Now stay with me because I want to tie this all into our crown and righteousness. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than what is laid, which is Christ Jesus. This is, nothing's better than Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. But that day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that has been built on the foundation survives, he will receive a what? Reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but not only, but only as through fire. Now, when we read the word fire, we immediately think of hell or something. He's not saying that. He's saying that the work that we choose, so he, he, the, the good work that we choose for the glory of God, and that's, by the way, that's Christ in us. That is gold, silver, precious stones. Those things are refined through the fire. But the things like wood and hay and straw, they'll be burned up. And, and what he's saying is what, what survives and what remains after this day of judgment that we stand before God and we're judged for the things that we do or we don't do, what remains is actually what we do for Christ. Therefore, at his judgment seat, this is all that matters. Everything else will be tested by fire and will be burned up. That's the only thing remains is what Christ has done in us. And I want you to see that this morning. So the question is this, if that's true, what kind of reward do we get? Because we can't boast in anything that we have done for ourselves. We can't boast in anything that we have done of our own works, our own righteousness. No, it's the only thing we can boast in is what Christ has done in us and through us and how he sustained us to the end. So what type of of reward do we get exactly? Let's read it again. Second, Second Timothy 4, verse 8. He says, There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, Lord, award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. What is the crown of righteousness? And here it is. Paul finally realized that he gets all the benefits of knowing Christ. That's the crown of righteousness. Remember, Paul is the same guy who in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he makes this wonderful statement that Martin Luther calls later the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So at birth, we are represented by Adam. 
because our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And because of that, we are cursed with sin. We're born represented by Adam. But because of Christ, if we repent of our sins and we believe in the gospel and Jesus's sacrificial death on the cross applies to us, we are then represented before God by Jesus Christ because he, 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 for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so when that happens, when that great exchange takes place, when Jesus Christ dies on the cross in our place, on our behalf, for our sins, we get to enjoy him on this earth. We get to persevere. We get the Holy Spirit who resides in us, who causes us and who enables us to live for him. We get all of those things. But here's the thing. We still live in a world of sin. We still struggle with sin. We still face temptation. We still face doubts and fears. And we still suffer and we still feel pain. And all of these things still happen. Even though we've been given a new heart, even though we're positionally made right with God, all of these things. But here's here's the wonderful thing about the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness, when it is bestowed upon us, it has nothing to do with what we've done, but everything to do with what Christ has done for us and We get all of the benefits of what it really means to have a savior like Jesus. We get to worship him in spirit and in truth without any interruption or any interference or any sin or any doubt or any pain or any worry. And again, we don't even know what that's like. We don't even know what that's like. But Paul is realizing this for the first time. And he says this wonderful statement. He says, not just for me, but it's to all of those who loved his appearing. This is for everyone who's a believer. We get to enjoy Christ here, but we get to enjoy him more on the other side. And it will be more than we could ever even imagine. So we get to see, because of Christ. We get to see all that we have been given in him. What does that mean? I have no idea. And no one else here does either. We can only build a bunch of scripture upon scripture and try to figure out this mystery, but it's still a mystery. But here's what I know for sure. When we are in heaven with him, we see all of the benefits of what it means to know Christ. I guarantee you this we will know that living a faithful life for the gospel till the end is all worth it. That every time you and I fought sin, we would finally realize it was worth it. That every time you and I didn't give in to temptation, we would realize that it was worth it. Every time we suffered for the gospel, we would realize it was worth it. Every time we sacrificed or we poured ourselves out like a drink offering, we'd finally realize that it was worth it. And so our motivation to live this Christian life and to be believers in Christ is to please the Father. Why? Because it's so worth it. And even when we displease him, it still does not change our position. We're still his sons and daughters. 
And the reason why he calls us out of sin and calls us to repentance is not because he's some cosmic killjoy. No, he knows that it's all worth it on the other end. This past week, I saw a great demonstration of that in my own sons. We had a Thanksgiving at my house this week, and um, the backyard is a perfect day for a backyard Thanksgiving. And uh, I don't know why we all do this. I don't know about you. Some families do like an 11 o'clock um, Thanksgiving meal. You're a genius. Others do it like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And why do we do that? To our, that's like torture. Like you'd smell it and you hear like the, and the carving of the turkey and all these things. And you're just like, you know, you're like a wild animal by the time it comes, you know. And I remember my, my wife, um, she loves candies and treats. They're all over our house. Willy Wonka has nothing on, our fa- on the Tugwell household. And so here we are. The boys can't wait, right? We're holding them off, you know. We're starving them a little bit starving them, right? And they go grab snacks and treats and their stuff. And okay, is it, okay, oh, I know he had a Hershey's kiss. There's the evidence, right? Those little string things that they put in the middle, <laughs> dead giveaway. And we're trying to stop them. Don't, 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 don't do it because there's something, what are we saying? There's something better for you on the other side if you just wait. It will be worth it for you not to eat this right now because there's something so much better. Your mom has this thing in the oven and it's called a sweet potato casserole where she's put marshmallows on top for the glory of God. And you get to wait for them and you get to wait for this giant turkey. There's this really unhealthy gravy on top of that that I think has cocaine in it. I don't know, but I don't care. But wait, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. And so what do we keep saying to our kids? It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. It's going to... And what happens when they don't? They cheapen. They cheapen this beautiful thing that they're going to get later because they don't think that it's worth it. And so it's the same idea for us. The crown of righteousness, it's our inheritance. And it's what we wait for because this is what is for all of us who believe. And so every time we fight sin, every time we try to endure this word, I promise you, I know this because God's word says it is worth it. And this is not some scale where we receive better crowns than others. And this should be an encouragement for you this morning because if you find yourself discouraged in your Christian life, maybe you're just a new believer and you're just trying to figure this thing out. Maybe you're finding yourself comparing yourself to others. Man, if I could be like an integrity, group, integrity church small group leader, if I could be like one of the deacons or one of the pastors, because they're down here, right? Or one of these famous preachers, if I could be like John Piper, or if I could be like Billy Graham, or we go way down here to like famous dead believers, right? If I could be like Martin Luther, because he's way down here. And if I could be like John Calvin, he's way down. And then finally, I'll be like Jesus. And we look at this long scale of things because I know these people God's going to be way more pleased with than he is with me who's just way down here. Let me just debunk that and say we're all at the same place. We're all at the foot of the cross. There's no scale. There's no God is more pleased with such and such and such. No, it's all 
the crown of righteousness, which is going to be placed on our heads because of what Christ has done for us in our place. And we all get the same benefits. God doesn't say, I like this child more than the other. No. It's all the same benefits. So how do we live in response to this? My encouragement for you is to look at this text and to see the way that Paul lived his life. That you and I, we would pour out ourselves for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because it's worth it. When you give sacrificially and generously, it's worth it. When you proclaim the gospel to others, when you invest your life in discipling other people, it is worth it. Why do we fight the good fight? Because it's worth it. When we avoid sexual temptation or pornography, it's worth it. When we avoid gossip or backbiting or lying, it's worth it. When we avoid pride or greed or self-righteousness, it's worth it. Why do we finish the race? Because it's worth it. When we endure suffering, it's worth it. When we overcome the world, it's worth it. Why? How do we keep the faith? Why do we keep the faith? Because it's worth it. When we open the word and we have a daily time with him to open his word and hear from him from his word and we pray to him, it's guaranteed. I know we feel like we lose time when we do it. We feel like it's a waste of time. No, it's worth it. Why? Because we get to just a little taste of something that we'll receive much greater later on. And we'll realize when we receive the crown of righteousness, we'll say, it was all worth it. So we live to please the Father. Why? Because it pleases us. And one day, if we're in Christ, we'll actually get to see it for ourselves. Let's pray as we wait for a better day.